Welcome to Thriller Premium. Welcome to Thriller Premium. In-depth coverage and timely analysis of macro and micro happenings in crypto. Welcome to Thriller Insider. gentlemen boys and girls gather around today is october 5th 2019 and we are talking the looming recession that's right i think it's important to really dive into what's going on with the global economy i, I think this is a needed episode um i think that it's an important episode and i think it's uh, uh among one of those things we have to do, like taking medicine, <laughs> even though it tastes so bad, right? Um, it's good to be aware of what's going on. Um, it affects all of us, um, and uh, it affects definitely the cryptocurrency markets as well, too. So today we're going to talk about that. The United States is currently experiencing one of the longest periods of economic expansion in history. The expansion has not reached all households, and many are struggling to cover the costs of basic emergencies. Now, at the same time, economic growth appears to be slowing, and there are warning signs that a recession is possibly in the near future. I think everybody can kind of feel that, you know, when they go to work, or they can feel it when they're watching the news, or they can feel it when they see the morning paper. Now, while downturns are difficult to predict, Policymakers have a responsibility both to assess whether the country is prepared for the next recession and to implement approaches to protect most Americans from the worst outcomes. The U.S. government has a variety of tools available to help pull the national economy out of recession. We've seen it in 2008. These tools generally fit into two categories. First, there is a monetary policy, which is conducted by the Fed. And then there is a fiscal policy, which is conducted by the executive and legislative branches of the United States government. Now, this has typically been enough, but it seems as of late, the open market trading desk at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, they've been conducting a series of overnight and term repurchase agreements, known as repo options, to help maintain the federal fund rates within the target range. Now, they just announced two days ago that uh, this will be effective of week October 7th all the way through Monday, November 4th, 2019. And they're going to be continually offer daily overnight repos for an amount of roughly $75 billion each weeknight. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, right? But they maintain that securities eligible as collateral, including Treasury, agency debt, and agency mortgage-backed securities are going to be the awarded amounts that they'll be able to offer, depending on the total quantity of eligible propositions submitted. So there's been a, a lot of people talking about this. We talked about it a week ago. Um, there's been 
mainstream coverage of the repurchase agreements that have been um, kind of sprouting up over the past week or so. Now, this all happened, you know, right around the time the whole Trump um, perjury thing was going on. And that kind of took the, the mainstream news's attention away from what this was. But it seems like this week it's sort of been amped up even more. And so you have multiple people showing up all over uh, CNN, um, MarketWatch, uh, MSNBC, Fox News. It doesn't matter. They're all talking about this. And um, you even have the Federal Reserve on the offensive trying to explain themselves as to why this um, was needed. So take a listen to Patrick Harker of the Federal Reserve of Philadelphia talk about what this means. Last week, there was an unusual stress in the money markets due primarily to funds flowing to the Treasury to meet corporate tax payments and settle Treasury security purchases. As a result, there were significant surges in repurchase repo rates early in the week, which put upward pressure on the effective funds rate, and in fact, pushed it above the top of the target range on Tuesday. Now, while interest rate control and market functions are obviously important issues, I want to reiterate my opening note that they neither reflect nor direct the stance of monetary policy, nor do they have implications for the wider economy. It's clear that last week's episode was triggered by the outside flow of private sector funds to the Treasury. But let's step back a little bit. Dates for tax payments and bond settlements should not and are not a surprise. Uh, they are fixtures of the fiscal calendar and well-known both to policymakers and markets. Everyone was expecting large liquidity flows. The impact, however, was clearly much larger than anyone anticipated, markets included. The repo market took the brunt of the impact as the secured overnight finance rate, SOFR, rose above 5% last Tuesday, with some trades exceeding, uh, executing at rates as high as 10%. While this was certainly not an average day, I think it's important to note that the repo market did not freeze. The volume of secured overnight finance remains steady at the $1.2 trillion level it has maintained for the past several months. The market did ultimately function. The funding pressures in secured markets passed through to the Fed funds market. The effective Fed funds rate rose to the top of the target range on Monday the 16th and surpassed the top of the range by five basis points the next day. That day, Tuesday, the New York Fed's open market trading desk started repurchase operations to stem the pressure on money markets and continued them for the duration of the week. Additionally, two technical adjustments were agreed upon at last week's FOMC meeting. First, the interest paid on reserves was set at 20 basis points below the top of the target range. And second, the overnight reverse repo rate was set five basis points uh, below the bottom of the target range. Those measures, I believe, successfully relieved funding pressures, and the effective Fed funds not only moved back within the target range, it came down to 10 basis points below the range of ceiling that Thursday and has remained there since. Conditions starting, are starting to normalize in the repo markets as well, with repo rates drifting lower on Thursday and Friday and starting this week around 1.85%. In fact, as before uh, I came up here, I checked, and that's roughly where they were at least in, in the morning. In fact, there's a significant drop in the fraction of volume in the Fed funds market that traded at rates above the target range. For instance, less than 1% of total Fed funds volume was priced outside the target range. On Friday, the desk announced it would initiate a series of repo operations, including several term operations 
to help keep the Fed funds rate within the target range. Those operations will continue until October 10th. We've seen strong demand for repo operations this week, possibly indicating that funding pressures may return on quarter end, and the desk stepped up operations limits yesterday. As Chair Powell noted in his post-meeting press conference, we will continue to monitor, monitor market developments and adjust operations as necessary to ensure that rates in the Fed funds market stay within the target range. So that's the situation where we are today. The obvious question that arises, and indeed has been asked, is why? I mean, what are the likely suspects? And one of those suspects is the current level of reserves. Is the current level of reserves appropriate? And whether the Fed needs to expand our toolkit better to manage interest rates. That's been floating around. I don't think we can actually answer or adequately answer those questions without first taking a step back and seeing them in a wider context. As you know, earlier this year, the FOMC decided it would continue to conduct monetary policy in a regime of ample reserves, in which the setting of administered rates acts as our primary policy tool, and the supply of reserves does not need to be, as a result, actively managed. Shortly after that, we announced our plan to cease asset redemptions and hold the balance sheet to roughly its post-redemption size. As currency and other non-reserve liabilities grow, aggregate reserves see a natural, gradual decline. Our end game was for the reserves to reach a level, quote, consistent with efficient and effective implementation of monetary policy, end quote. Now, there were two primary objectives to this approach. First was to reduce uncertainty about asset purchases by announcing our plans well in advance. Second, to approach the necessary levels of reserves, which itself is suffused with uncertainty, with a great abundance of caution. Now, we only have estimates of the demand for reserves, though we've conducted a great deal of research around the Federal Reserve System, including continued conversations with market participants. In fact, the, the staff at the Philadelphia and New York Feds were among the first to identify that the need for reserves could be much larger than many anticipated. So to be on the safe side, it made sense to move slowly, buying time to carefully observe market developments and better assess their implications. That is, we gave ourselves time for the inevitable unknown unknowns of life like the one that occurred last week, just to pick an entirely random example. We knew that something like this was possible, and so we wanted to, to prepare for that by moving slowly. In fact, while they may appear jarring at the moment, these movements jarring the moment, temporary episodes like this do have happened in the past, as Charlie said, and they do offer a host of information and insight. It is very possible that our reserves are near or approaching their appropriate level. That is, as the Philadelphia and New York Fed's research noted, it might be on the higher end of our estimates. If that's the case, we may, and I emphasize may, need to resume the organic growth of the balance sheet earlier than anticipated. So we'll continue to monitor and assess monetary uh, money market conditions and act as necessary uh, to ensure interest rate control. But I think a, a central question is why liquidity did not flow smoothly to where it was needed most. Again, echoing some of the conversation we were having earlier. So I'll once again spare you any suspense. I really, in this area, have more questions than answers. I think it's important to avoid jumping to conclusions, and I certainly wouldn't write any prescriptions, policy or otherwise, before we know 
what ailed the markets? In the oft-used analogy of money markets as plumbing, we should ask, and I think we are asking, whether some pipes might be rusted or clogged, or if more pipes might be needed. It's also worth asking if regulation might be contributing to any erosion or blockage in those pipes that might exist. The second question is whether the Fed ought to expand our toolkit. If many, as many of you have noted uh, from the June FOMC minutes, there was a discussion about the possibility of a standing repo facility. In theory, this could provide a backstop against the unusual spikes in the Fed funds and other money market rates. Now, these discussions, I need to say, are in their infancy. And there is more work to be done, particularly in considering how such a facility would be designed, what objectives, of, what are the objectives of such a facility, and what its net benefits would be relative to alternative approaches. So all in all, I see three takeaways from this interlude. First, in the face of unexpected turmoil, the Fed took swift and appropriate action, and it appears to have had its desired effect. Second, the element of surprise suggests that some deeper issues may be at play. And third, that the Fed is committed to do what it takes to maintain interest rate control, and we will continue to keep a watchful eye. With that, let me finish and open the floor up for questions. So the squeeze on the short-term borrowers that caused this flurry of excitement is recalled as an early warning sign of the banking system's coming collapse. At least that's what most people will tell you that are in the cryptocurrency space. On Tuesday, though, there simply weren't enough dollars to keep short-term loans rolling. And that's the truth. Um, he just said that. This implies that the dollar short squeeze is upon us. Now, the Fed handled the problem without breaking a sweat. Everything happened really, really fast. Not too much was made of it, you know, in the Wall Street Journal until like a week later, until this past week. Now, that cost might run into the trillions one day, which is to say more money than the central bank can gin up on a short notice. When this day of reckoning comes, the banks won't open the next day, nor will credit card transactions clear. There is no way that even a prudent person can completely protect him or herself from the fallout of something like this. And it is curious because does that mean that there's a dollar shortage? You know, is this happening? Is there a strengthening in the dollar? Most major economists will say that before a devaluation of the dollar happens, there will be a strengthening of a dollar, which will cause the dollar to collapse. I think we've heard uh, Caitlin Long talk about this about a week ago when we were talking about it. But if you try to focus just on the U.S., you're, you're going to get one-way answers. You're not truly going to understand the global picture of this all. Because I think the next recession has already hit some other countries. Now, Noriel Rubino is somebody that a lot of the vast majority of the cryptocurrency space hates. <laughs> uh, he doesn't think Bitcoin is going to go anywhere. He hates this whole space. And uh, they call him Dr. Doom. But if there is one thing that Nuro Rubino is fairly competent at, it's uh, understanding global economies. Take a listen to Nuro Rubino's four collision courses for the global economy that's upon us. 
Well, it's not going to be that apocalyptic, but a hard Brexit is going to tilt the UK economy, slowing down into recession. And even the European economy is going to stall because right now we have a near recession in Germany and Italy. Germany, Belgium, Netherlands, Ireland export a lot to the United Kingdom. Business confidence is sharply down. The PMIs in Europe are much worse for manufacturing than they are in the United States. And the, the kind of a confidence shock of seeing thousands of cars and trucks stuck at Dover and Calais because of the paperwork required after hard Brexit is going to have a huge negative impact on business confidence. It's going to weaken business confidence, going to weaken the economy and CapEx is going to lead to a correction in European equities, at least 10%. And it's going to spill over as a risk off to the global economy and consumer confidence may go down. So you might have animal spirits of consumer businesses and investors essentially tilting a European economy that is borderline into a stall, into an outright recession. So it's not just the UK, but it's going to be the rest of the European economy and the Eurozone that go into a recession. So you don't have to be apocalyptic. Just a negative impact on confidence can essentially turn this manufacturing recession in Europe and the UK into an outright recession. And we're weaker in Europe by all standards than we are in the United States. You mentioned the slowness in Germany, obviously a very export heavy country, another uh, area of the world that's very exposed to autos and secular trends. Uh, do those necessarily reflect a core <laughs> economic slowness, uh, Nuriel? Is the Germany situation um, as bad as it seems from the export side? Because some of the employment data lately has been somewhat encouraging. Well, like in the US and the rest of the world, in Germany, industry is down. CAPEX is down, exports are down, domestic demand is strong, consumption is strong because you have low unemployment rate and okay job growth. But Germany has an 8% of GDP trade surplus. The currency war between US and China and the trade war and debt war is hurting their exports. The softness of growth in China emerging markets weakening Germany. The weakness of Italy and the rest of the Eurozone is weakening Germany and the recession coming into the UK and if you had hard Brexit it's going to have a shock to the exports of Germany to the United Kingdom is another shock and there is also the risk that the US at the end of the year is going to impose tariff on European auto exports to the United States and those are mostly German exports and the German auto industry has already had a stall because of the switch from diesel to other types of fuel and so on and so on. So Germany, that's supposed to be the strongest economy in the Eurozone right now, together with Italy, looks like, like the weakest because its openness to trade implies that when there are all these global tail risks, it's the first victim of those global headwinds. Uh, Nurul, the other two that you mentioned here uh, are about what's happening in Argentina and then also the risk of possible escalation between the U.S. and Iran. I want to talk about Iran for a sec because uh, in your report, what you talk about is the risk to higher oil prices. But when I look at the last 20 days, we had a shock attack on Saudi oil fields that had the potential to, it looked like, spike oil to the moon. And this trade couldn't even last a week. Oil dropped right back down. So uh, where's the risk to oil in the upside if that kind of shock wasn't even sustainable? Well, first of all, uh, oil prices had fallen before this attack because there is a risk of a global recession because of U.S.-China. And therefore, in that recession, demand for commodity oil is going to fall. 
The shock led to initially overnight to a spike in oil prices by 20%, then by five. And what happened was that the damage to the oil facilities was less than expected and is recovering. And therefore, oil prices are still up, but less than before. The global weakness is a softness for oil prices. But the attack shows that if you can be solo tech, send a bunch of drones with bombs and for even a period of time damage the production capacity of uh, Saudi Arabia, a bigger attack with rockets could destroy it or the Iranians could block the Strait of Hormuz in a situation of a hot war between US and China. I think that while that hot war is unlikely, we have seen three episodes in the last 40 years of a geopolitical shock leading to stagflation, recession, inflation. 1973, Yom Kippur between Israel and Arab states. 1979, Iranian Revolution. 1990, Iraq invasion of Kuwait. In all of these cases, there was a shock to all prices, an embargo, all prices spiked, inflation, recession. So conditional on a hot war between US and Iran occurring, oil could go very easily above $100 per barrel. Mm. Gasoline could be $4 or $5 a gallon, and then that kills the US consumer and tips the US economy into recession. Yes, we produce a lot of shale gas and oil, but that benefits the producer. The distributional effects of an oil price shock is that profit may go higher, that doesn't increase economic activity, while the consumers are hit and they're gonna cut consumption. So if that, hot war between US and Iran were to occur, and that's an if, then that will be another tipping point for the global economy. So I think people are underestimating because an accident can occur. The two sides are in a collision course and they're provoking each mm. other. Now, Trump knows that if he attacks Iran, they're going to counterattack and oil prices are going to spike. So he has restrained himself. But the Iranians are keep on provoking the United States, first with the drone down, then with the attack on the oil facilities. When the U.S. is going to attack, following a provocation, an escalation can occur, mm. and the price increase is not going to be for a few days, it's going to be sustained over time, especially if the Strait of Hormuz were to be blocked by the Iranians. That's certainly a tail risk to keep in mind. So not only are we seeing all of that going on, but we have the Federal Reserve and the repurchasing agreements that are happening. We also have this whole kind of technology and trade war that's going on with China. If we look at what's happening here in the next election in the United States, we, we know that's a whole kind of cosm in itself. Um, and then if you look at just the regular people out there, um, people are struggling. And, and that's just in every country, not just in the United States. Um, it's especially bad in Australia, right? Um, there's a lot of systemic shock that's going on out there. Uh, more so than it was in 2008. This next global financial crisis that's upon us or that's happening in some places is uh, going to affect everybody uh, one way or another. You're going to need everybody to act now before this recession comes. Governments will need to prepare. And what we're going to see is helicopter money of some sort. Uh, monetary policy three is what they're calling it. So if this fiscal policy is crucial in combating any coming downturn, while there is reasonable concern that Congress will not act in a timely manner for fiscal policy to be maximally effective, the United States has certain policies that are triggered automatically in the event of recession. Now, some of these interim policies provide a buffer between when the recession occurs and when fiscal policy gets implemented. But if it's anything like the last decade, uh, 
it'll be too late. So everybody knows the United States has debt. And everybody knows most of that debt is held in treasury bonds around the world. And if you ask a normal person out there who is not political and not really one-sided one way or another, they would say that the United States is trying to devalue its currency through its debt and through the printing of more money. But you don't have to take this person's word for it. All you have to do is listen to BlackRock's CEO. So what I spend most of my time on are what questions are, am I not being asked? What am I not listening to? What am I not reading about? Mm -hmm. And I would say the biggest issue, because it's you know, is still retirement, but that's a much longer term issue. But the biggest issue, probably in the more intermediate period of time, is you know the U.S. deficits and the supply of U.S. Treasuries. Now, right now, as I said, you can't find any offers right now, so it's not a problem today. But we, we are having deficits as large as a trillion dollars, as far as we can see. You had the MSCI and the Bloomberg indexes now change the composition of the indexes more in favor to China in equities and in bonds which means less global demand for U.S. products. As I said, at the same time, we have, um, we have these large deficits. And then more importantly, if there is a comprehensive trade agreement between the U.S. and China, and China does indeed reduce its trade surplus with the United States, which is one of the main objectives, China does not need to then sterilize its currency by buying U.S. treasuries. And so this is going to be a big issue. And no one is talking about that at all. China owns about $1.2, $1.3 trillion of U.S. treasuries, which represents 5-ish you know, percent of our outstanding stock. Issue. Of, of debt. It, 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 but if, if we have more, uh, if we have a, a trade agreement that it brings the trade deficits down or their surplus down, they don't need to own these treasuries. So anymore. are you saying a trade agreement with China is going to drive up treasury yields or should? Well, that, that, we'll see if that's the outcome. It will reduce their demand for U.S. treasuries. Well, supply and demand. Being so, equal, so if, I, if there's no other buyer for is there another? I'll just ask the question: well, Is there right another now, buyer for treasuries? Right, right now, there's plenty of buyers. We're sitting at what a two seventy whatever four. Mm -hmm. I haven't checked today. Um, so you would say there's plenty of demand for U.S. Treasury. My worry about in the next few years, as deficits persist, we're going to see more foreigners buying different just because of the composition of of the indexes, China because of the trade surplus decline, there could be a moment in time where U.S. Treasuries have to go higher in yield because we have a supply problem. Is that 10 basis points? Is that 25 basis points? Is that 50? Is there a point in time where the supply of Treasuries become to, to satisfy the, you know, to, to, to find the demand, let's assume, at a certain level, does that mean Treasuries are too high to and does that harm the economy? So what you're telling me indirectly is modern monetary theory isn't going to take care of this problem. Oh, moder that's, 
That's, I was going to say something I shouldn't say on television. That's garbage. <laughs> You're with Jay Powell on this one. Yeah, I, it doesn't, yeah. Raising taxes does, and, and, you know, raising taxes does not help modern, modern, you know, uh, economic growth. And more importantly, yes, I'm a big believer that deficits do matter. I'm a big believer that deficits can, are going to be driving uh, interest rates much higher, and, and, a, and it could drive it to an unsustainable level. Now, I did hear the the theory is, you know, in modern theory is about, you know, until we see deficits harm, that's that will tell us deficits are too high. To me, as a parent, it's like watching your children have bad behaviors, and you just watch and watch and watch and watch until that behavior becomes monumental. I, I think that's not a good approach. So with all these ultra-loose monetary policies, that keep the cost of credit exceptionally low for an extended period of time. Then you have the Federal Reserve's active manipulation fostering a wealth effect, but it also fosters an asset bubble. And then when the big, I guess, bubble pops, corporations will batten down their hatches, unemployment will surge, consumers will rein in their consumption, now, the severity of a wealth effect reversal will trigger the next recession. And that is what uh, CEO Lawrence Fink is alluding to right there. Of course, he failed to mention that uh, retirees will need to be more active to meet their inflation adjusted rate of return requirements. Or I think he alluded to it in the beginning of that. Before I got into cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, I used to naively think that I knew how the world's money worked, right? <laughs> I think I subscribed to the Federal Reserve's printouts money, and then it directs it to the rest of the central banks across the world. And that's how it works. Everybody gets this trickle-down effect. Um, it wasn't until I got into crypto and Bitcoin and, and how little I understood of how the Federal Reserve works or how central banks across the world works. I feel like I've gotten a grasp of it now, but I'm still learning every day, uh, even more and more, um, with more depth uh, and more more width of this whole market and how it affects everybody. Um, I will say that um, looking up all of these subjects and all of this information today was really hard um, because I wanted to create this picture for y'all of what was happening. And I hope I can do that. I hope you're starting to understand what's going on around the world. But one of the key things that I understood, or at least that I gathered from today, was most of the people in power, uh, even at the Federal Reserve level, are just following their duties. I think I naively used to think that they were out to get people. <laughs> they were out to rip off people. Uh, it's not until diving into this stuff, I really realized that, no, they're really just doing their job. And their job requires them to print more money or to maintain this kind of uh, oscillating effect of the entire world's economy. And um, they're just doing what they can with the tools that they're given. Um, it's not a right or wrong thing. I'm sure there's some um, morality uh, feelings they probably feel, you know, uh, on a daily basis about what they're doing. But uh, to say that uh, they're 
ill-intentionally doing these things on purpose to hurt everybody? I, I don't I don't think so. I really don't. Uh, I used to naively think that was the case, uh, but now I come to realize that was just the wrong way of looking at it. And it was surprising to me that um, the Federal Reserve Chairman of Philadelphia talked about this openly uh, in public. And I um, want you to take a listen to that because it was a question that was asked from an audience member. On a different subject, um, MMT. Assuming we get a wiring administration or some other Democratic uh, you know, candidate becoming president and decides to do this huge spending program, trying to put the pressure on the Fed to monetize the government spending, how would the Treasury be able to pressure the Fed, which has its independence to go along, would the Fed then just push back and tell the government, you know, be my guest and you know see what happens in the in the actual market and then be forced into QE? So I'm not the Fed, right? I'm one cog in the wheel of the Fed, so I can't answer that question exactly, uh, except to say uh, two things, and I can only speak for myself. One, I do think this is a dangerous path we're on uh, to continue to just spend money. Uh, you're seeing it all across the economy. And forget the federal level for a minute. Just go to any state. Talk to any governor in any state. Once they figure their pension obligations, keeping the lights on in the prisons and schools, right, there's not a lot of money left. And this is in one of the best economies we've ever seen. And so we're not investing. And you see this. I was talking to Mickey earlier about this. I'm a former president of a public university. When I started, the, the contribution of the state to our public university was in double digits. When I left, it was single digits. Now, you can say, because they didn't like me, but I don't think that was the point. Uh, it, was, it was easy during the, the crisis to tell us to raise tuition. And at the same time we're doing this, we're telling everybody in America, you need better skills, you need higher skills, you need to get more education. And the one place in America that we provide where people can go and get that in an affordable way, public universities, we're starving. It is a personal pet peeve of mine. But I understand it from a governor's perspective. Like, what am I supposed to do? I, my, these pension obligations are killing me, right? So go back to MMT. I have a very simple view of this. So if the theory is we're going to invest in the productive capacity of the economy, we're going to get a return greater than the cost of capital, okay. So tell me what we're going to invest in that's going to produce 80% of the budget, I would argue, has little to do with increasing the productive capacity of America, the federal budget. If we're going to spend more on that, we're not going to get that return. It's just not, it just doesn't add up. So beyond whether the Fed would fund this or not, I think we have to ask a more fundamental question. Is this even a good idea? And I just think it's a dangerous idea um, to go down this path because I don't see how the math works, right? And given what we know about what we'd invest in. I just don't see it. And this is the Federal Reserve Chairman of Philadelphia talking like this. So if he sees within inside, like he said, he's just a cog in a wheel, how broken the system is, then that's something to take notice, right? That's something to be aware of. That tells you that this uh, modern monetary policy that they're using, that they're trying to... Um, keep uh, embracing after every recession is going to die, right? That's why you have Ray Dalio out there talking about monetary 
modern monetary policy three, which is basically just helicopter money. And um, I it wasn't until I saw another speech from somebody I really respect. Um, this is the same person that I learned. Uh, I think it was, uh, I don't know if it was Stanford, but he had some courses online. I think we even talked about it on the show where he was talking about, he explains like the whole financial um, kind of evolution in the United States and how it occurred from the early days of multiple currencies to um, the the Bretton Woods in 73. Uh, and this guy was was basically just explaining everything and it was brilliant and he knew his stuff until I heard him talk about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And it was a hard pill to swallow because this is somebody that I have a lot of respect for because I was able to learn all these new concepts about uh, modern monetary policy, right, from him. And he was talking about Bitcoin in such a way that I, I just didn't agree. But I thought it'd be interesting to play it for you because it was with this piece of audio that I heard that I realized, you know, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are the fix, not the symptom of this next recession. Cryptocurrency is something I've been interested in really ever since the beginning because I do monetary economics and I was trying to uh, figure this thing out. And it, it's been a very, a very challenging process. You may have noticed that the first thing I've ever written in public about that has just happened in the last few weeks. And, and I had picked it up on their webpage called Crypto's Fear Credit, okay? And I think the reason it's taken me a while is because I haven't been able to figure out uh, they didn't have any sort of explicit monetary theory that I could engage with. It's all, it's all about computer programming and so forth. Um, but I had a great fortune uh, a few weeks ago that there was a workshop organized at Columbia University by Katrina Pistor, my, my law colleague, where we got a bunch of these uh, Bitcoin and whatnot advocates in the room with some lawyers, and I was able to ask them, what is your implicit monetary theory? You know, how, 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 and it was extremely revealing, okay? So now I really feel that I understand <coughs> what is happening, okay? And so I'm going to tell you. Um, uh, a, 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 a viewpoint, my viewpoint. I mean, we'll, I think it's evolving. Um, I think it's extremely, this is why I crystallized it in this little meme, crypto's fear credit, okay? Because I, I think that encapsulates a lot of, of what is, is important here. Um, that the uh, Bitcoin enthusiasts and, and others um, are a, a version of the digital gold bug um, who are, uh, well, I'll say that and then I'm going to elaborate. Um, they view money primarily as just a medium of exchange, okay? And they think it's sort of obvious, obvious that money is just a medium of exchange. They don't appreciate that there might be other theories, there might be other approaches. They think, and they quote sort of selectively from uh, economics, like, well, as so-and-so says, such and such. So they're basically uh, uh, crypto monetarists um, also. Um, I'm going to come back to this at the end um, because so that's the first the first overview, um, and uh, and so they're digital gold bugs in the sense that they think money should should be there's no credit element in it at all. That's that's the point. So why do they fear credit? Okay, um, they're 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 not particularly paranoid people, um, although the engagement with the uh, cryptology and so forth um, does create a kind of paranoid mindset. You're always imagining, 
you know, the worst. What is somebody going to do? How are they going to? How are they going to crack my code? How are they going? So they're. But they would like to create a world, okay, in which nobody has to trust anybody, okay, um, and uh, so they'll never get screwed by anybody because they've never trusted anybody. But they no one has to trust anybody, and they imagine that as the realm of freedom that we will be free because we won't have to trust each other. What are they really anxious about? Because they're actually nice people, and they like each other, and they're 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 not really uh, you know automatons that are separate from society. They have their own little society, as a matter of fact. Um, what they fear is concentrated power. They fear the way the monetary economy, the financial economy, has required us to trust Citibank, okay, or trust the government. Okay, that because we don't know each other in large mass society, um, we have uh, not IOUs with each other, but we, we trade in IOUs with, this, with, with, with the Federal Reserve, okay, or with Citibank, and that's what they're opposed to. So this is quite interesting phenomenon. Um, one of the phenomena in society right now is discontent with, the, with global financialization. Cryptocurrency advocacy is a symptom of that discontent. Um, that symptom shows up in a lot of other places, in our politics and, and in other places. But this is what I want to maybe, from a, from a political economy point of view, from a cultural point of view, that cryptocurrency is maybe not an answer, but it's definitely a symptom. And so something to pay attention to uh, for our society. So that's the second point. The third point. The, to the extent there's a monetary theory underlying this, okay, the uh, main one that people seem to appeal to is this paper by uh, an, an economist, Kocha um, Lakota, um, called, called Money is Memory. Okay? If you look at that paper, what you see he is imagining okay, is that, that the, way, the, what, the reason that money is, is spending power, gives you ability to buy, is because it's a token showing that you have already sold something. Okay. That, it, that, it, that it's a, way, a social memory that you have already supplied some goods to society, and so now society is going to supply some to you. So it's very backward-looking, right? It's backward-looking. It's, it's, it's saying, how do I know that you're doing any good for anybody? Show me your wallet, okay? And you see the, the, the digital coins there, and it's, oh, I guess you, somebody, you must have sold something to somebody that they liked. I don't really know what it is you sold them, but here's a token, and I will therefore... Um, accept that from you and give you some and give you some goods. Okay. Credit is exactly the opposite, right? Credit gives you the ability to purchase today because of some prospect of of, of doing something good for society, or doing something in the future. You're making a promise. It's not from the past. It's from the future. Um, this is, from my point of view, like 18th century economics. You know, it really, it 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 does not pay any attention to all of the shift in the cultural focus of economics from the past to the future, understanding the financial revolution as being um, anticipating future and capitalizing them back to the present, and that's what gives you access to credit. They, I think they appreciate that that's the way the financial system works. They just think it's bad, okay? Mm -hmm. And that it would be better to have a simpler, uh, so they fear credit uh, uh, for these reasons, concentrated power, uh, and they fear credit uh, because Credit is disruptive. Okay. Credit gives purchasing power to people who haven't earned it through past be behavior. They imagine their own innovations are themselves disruptive. 
they're going to disrupt this big, horrible financial system, okay? But in fact, they're afraid of the disruptive quality of, of, of the credit system um, as it exists, and even simple credit systems are rather, are rather uh, disruptive. So, the, uh, so my fourth point is that credit is key to the operations of monetary systems. Anyone who's seen my movie knows this, okay? But I'll just, say, just, just reference that that the main point that I make about the payment system is that it is essentially a credit system, okay? That, that people are, are, that there's an expansion of, of balance sheets, of bank balance sheets, of, of clearinghouse balance sheets during the day that then gets settled at the end. Um, that that's where the elasticity comes from. That makes it possible for us to then settle just with offsetting credits, not with money. Most, most actual payments are, are settled through offsetting credit balances, not through, oh, I see that you have proven from this money thing that you've done something good for somebody. Um, that, and that gives it elasticity. Okay? The discipline comes from if there is an imbalance, you have to settle that imbalance in money. Okay? That's, but the imbalance is very tiny compared to the gross flow of payments. So it's an impossible payment system they're proposing because the, the actual payment system operates essentially on credit uh, in much more way than they think. They think that money is a means of exchange. This is just not correct as an empirical fact about the world. Secondly, um, and they don't think about this at all, okay, that market making, where do these prices come from, these financial prices that are anticipated in the future and, and bring it down? There's a market making process. There are dealers who are offering bid ask spreads. These prices come, and, and how do the dealers operate? They operate by bringing onto their own balance sheet imbalances between supply and demand, which they finance with credit. Okay, so again, we would not have financial prices, okay, if we did not have the ability of, of, of these speculative dealers to, to balance supply and demand by taking the opposite side and funding it with promises to pay um, in the future. That elasticity is crucial for financial stability. Um, if you didn't have credit quantity absorbing these fluctuations in supply and demand, it would all be in price, okay? And so this is, uh, now they don't recognize any of that. Okay, um, because none of them have taken the MOOC. Okay, but <laughs> but 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 perhaps they perhaps they will. What what is going to make them? And the reason they haven't taken the MOOC, okay, is is not because they don't work hard and they're not intellectuals. They definitely are hard. They are hard workers. It's because they don't think they have to. Right? They think that they don't need to know anything about money and finance because they intend to replace it. They're gonna. They know about code. And so they're just going to recode the world into a better, beautiful world, okay? And and everyone will see that it's better code, and they'll just adopt it, and away with Goldman Sachs, it'll all just go away uh, tomorrow. Um, and, which is sort of, I don't know, innocent and 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 naive, and maybe a little dangerous. Um, but uh, and I, you mean all those words because because they don't understand the credit character of the economy as it exists, they're extremely vulnerable to exploitation by people who do understand how it works, okay? And that's what's happening now, okay? And you can see some of this in, Isabel is following this on, on FT Albaville, um, where it's pretty clear, okay, that there is a credit network being built on top of Bitcoin and other things, where people are, are, are calling something a coin that is not a coin, that is a promise to pay a coin. And the people who are dealing with Bitcoin think it's a coin, and then it turns out there is no coin there. And so it's financial scams of various kinds um, that are happening. Tether is one example that we were, we were talking about. We can talk in, maybe in some details. I would need to show you balance sheets and things like that to explain what is most likely going on there. Um, 
the so there is intermediation happening on top of crypto okay in both the payments and in the market making if you look at the mechanisms where you're exchanging one crypto for another if you look at the firms that are promising to make markets essentially for an exchange exchanging bitcoin for dollars those are dealers okay the economics of the dealer function okay applies to them these are these are intermediaries. These are credit operations, um, and whether the I think the the people who designed this code have no idea, okay, that that is actually what's happening behind behind the scene. Because I talked with them, they are not aware that that their fear of credit has now put them in bed with people who see credit as a wonderful opportunity, uh, unregulated credit uh, for taking advantage and fleecing. The, the herd. So they're going to discover about credit and they're going to discover how ignorant they are about credit and it's going to end in tears. Okay. <laughs> Finally, since this is a conference on new economic thinking, what is extremely interesting to me is that one of the things that will happen to the cryptos when they discover this is that they will become extremely interested in credit. Okay? <laughs> and they will, they will realize that their monetary theory okay, is wrong. Okay, and that they have to find some new monetary theory, and they will go looking. And 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 this is an opportunity. Not only, I mean, I'm an educator, so I, when people just say, "Oh, please teach me," you know, that's my job. Um, but this is about economists as well, because I pointed out to you, they think they have a monetary theory. Okay, crypto monetarist monetary theory. Okay, Contra Lakota monetary theory. Money is a medium of exchange monetary theory. They think that's the right monetary theory. And there's plenty of economists who agree with them, okay? Because they wrote these papers, right? So this is going to create an opening for a larger conversation, not just about uh, cryptocurrencies, but about what is the actual, what are the actual ruling principles of the monetary and financial economy we live in. It's going to open up space for dialogue because we will see that the operating monetary theory to which they were they were pledging allegiance and the, the, the monetary authorities in the economics profession to whom they are pledging allegiance, okay, are not correct. Okay? Uh, the, the world will show them this and then there will be an opening. Um, and and that's what I need exists for. So uh, I'm looking forward to that moment. I think it's sooner rather than later, but perhaps Isabella will give us she has her finger on the pulse. Thank you. So there was a lot right there that Professor Perry Merling dived into. One of the things that he doesn't realize is that not only do cryptos, as he calls this, <laughs> uh, not only do we uh, look at finance markets and uh, pay attention to how fiscal policy works across the world, um, we're really fascinated by it. And the more we dive into it, the more we uncover how broken it is. Um, and uh, this is somebody that is a technologist, right? Like my day job is in IT. Um, I'm studying about finance at night. So I think he's, I think he's not aware of that. Um, I would also say another thing that's extremely important is not only does crypto understand credit, we probably understand credit better than they do. Um, the only reason I say that is because we have Andreessen Horowitz, one of the biggest venture capitalists uh, in the entire world, um, devoting millions of dollars into building out this decentralized finance on Ethereum. Uh, this is why Ethereum is so important because this decentralized movement, this DeFi movement is gonna be the next catalyst 
to this next big bull run that happens. And if you're paying attention to that space, then you would understand that not only are they building out um, credit and DAOs and other aspects of raising capital, um, they're starting to rival most banks in what they can produce out. Earlier this week, we had Coinbase release a USDC for your crypto, for your Coinbase wallet. Uh, you're going to get, I think, 2% interest back or something like that. So not only do these um, cryptos, as he calls us, uh, not only do we understand credit, but we're already starting to build that out. Um, so when I hear somebody like him who's misinformed, who's not paying attention to the space, um, I feel bad for him because those are the people that park most of their wealth um, inside the stock market and inside of these um, global conglomerates, right? And those are the people I feel bad for because if Bitcoin goes to zero, will I be sad? Absolutely. Will it be one of those things I was hoping for, um, like uh, the internet in the early 90s? Yes, I would be extremely sad. Uh, will I lose most of my wealth? Absolutely not. No. But if I'm right, if what I do with this technology uh, in its scales going forward, if most of the cryptos, as he calls us, are right, if the world economy is ready for this, then will we have the most to profit? Absolutely. So at that point, you're really not um, losing anything. Um, he says, we're going to go crying back to mommy or, you know, crying back to, I don't know what he was saying exactly there, but, you know, I understand that he, he sees us as a really dumb crowd. He probably sees us as digital gold bugs. I think that's what he said. Um, that's far from the truth, far from the truth. I think if he looked at Ethereum, he would understand that um, not only are young technologists and computer scientists going into this field, um, they're going into this field to change the world because the vast majority of past generations failed to change the world for the better and only looked out for themselves. So, yes, we understand the implications. Yes, we understand what we need to build for this financial future that hopefully frees everybody from the shackles of these global, you know, elites that um, mass themselves behind these um, these conglomerates, right? This is what we're we're after. We're after a level playing field. That's all we've ever been after. Um, I think when this next recession comes, you'll see the strengthening of the dollar. I mean, it's happening right now. It's why we're seeing Bitcoin so low. It's at 8,000. You know, it's probably going to retest, you know, 7,600 here pretty soon this week. Um, the reason for that is because the dollar is strengthening, right? It's costing less U.S. dollars to buy one Bitcoin. That's just the truth. That, that's all that is. In the future, when the, the dollar devalues and um, continues to devalue because it will at some point, You'll see Bitcoin be worth, you know, $100,000. And at that point, it will be because the dollar has devalued considerably. Um, so make no mistake, this is happening <laughs> one way or another. 
it's just uh, who wins is what it seems like these people that are against cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, it's more like a, a zero sum game for them. Like they have to win in order for cryptocurrency to lose. And for cryptocurrency and Bitcoin for us to win, we just need to be <laughs> in the game. And currently we're in the game. So it's not a zero sum game for us. Like we've already won. I think it was, um, gosh, I forget his name. It was Nicholas Gage. Uh, he has a podcast and he, he asked on crypto Twitter, um, when will you have known if Bitcoin was successful? And I tweeted back at him. I was like, we're already successful. The rest is just an education game. And that's all we're doing here is just educating the masses. You know, uh, Marty Bent runs another podcast that's very popular. It's called Tales from the Crypt. And he's kind of done this new thing where, and I, I agree with him, uh, no longer calling no coiners, no coiners, calling them pre-coiners. Yeah, pre-coiners. It makes sense because eventually they're going to be into crypto and Bitcoin. So they're pre-coiners, coiners. And um, so when I hear somebody like Perry Merling, and I have a lot of respect for him because he taught me a lot about finance um, and the history of it. So I have a lot of respect for him, but I, I think he's really needs to listen either through the crypto or, or other podcasts or just pick up a book, right? And like Saifedean's book, um, The Bitcoin Standard, like he really needs to understand what is, is happening, uh, what's going on here. And take a look at Ethereum. He would be really surprised of how well we understand finance at this point. We understand credit as well, too. I think a maker is going to be one of those projects that's going to, um, you know, really provide ETH a lot of momentum going forward in this next big bull run. Um, I think DeFi is going to be the next big, you know, movement, um, very similar to what the ICO was in 2017. It's, uh, DeFi seems like that's going to be the next big thing here for Ethereum. But uh, we'll see. This is all speculation still. We're still in the game. We don't need to we don't need to see fiat money lose for us to win. We've already won. <laughs> the fact that we're able to pay with Bitcoin, you know, is is already happening. Right. And the fact that Mac just came on board is already happening. Um, it's just going to take more time for us to further educate the masses. And that's all this is. It's just education. And that's why that's why I really think that's the most important thing that everybody should be attacking is just educating because through education, you get more people on board, which brings further development for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, which basically, you know, like I have a lot of respect for somebody like Andreas Antonopoulos. Like he's somebody that has educated thousands, hundreds of thousands of people across the world in multiple languages with multiple books. And he's done multiple um, YouTube videos, thousands, you know. So it's because of the education that we're able to further this movement. And eventually, I, I don't expect the global elites to come and use cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. Why would they? They have no reason to. This is a retail. This is a consumer. This is a every person movement, right? This is for the other 99%. That's what Bitcoin and crypto is. Seriously, it really is. And every big bull run, it's because of that retail movement that we've had. So let's not lose focus of that.
You know, I always make it my mission to hear the other side. I really am bullish about that. I love hearing what's wrong with cryptocurrency. I love hearing what's wrong with Bitcoin. I want that criticism. I need that criticism to understand it better. And so hearing somebody like Perry talk about that today, I get it. I understand it. I appreciate it. But to see the looming recession upon us, makes me treasure that information and treasure that education that I've already received from Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. And it's with that that I'm able to apply that education towards this next looming recession and use it to my advantage because most people out there will not be ready for this. And I urge every one of you listening to share this newsletter with them help them understand why it's important because it is see you next time